Raymond will be here next week, and he'll be finishing, concluding his series on James. At the same time, we are in another series looking at uh, some of the parables in Matthew. And we'll be in Matthew 21, 33 through 46. Your time this morning will be greatly aided if you follow along in a copy of God's Word. Uh, it's on page 827, and the, the Bible's in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to take that home and write your name in it and consider it yours as a gift from our church. That, that would encourage us. Now let's turn our attention to God's word with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself was here speaking to us. Matthew 21, starting in verse 33. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servant and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches, wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read of the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priest and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds. Because they held him to be a prophet. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning uh, with a text uh, to, to our modern contemporary world is very confusing. And so we pray that you would lead us, that you would guide us, that you would direct us in your spirit. And Lord, that you would have something for us. And if there's anyone here this morning who is not a believer, they would have the chance to hear the truth of Jesus, and have new life in Christ. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. So this past fall, uh, when it was what I like to call uh, sweater weather or the perfect season, right? It's, 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 not, it's, it's not hot anymore, so you don't need your AC, but it's not cold and you don't need your heat, and you can just open, open the windows and, and the fresh air comes in. It was one of those days. And I serve in youth ministry, and so a lot of times I might have to work at night, and I have meetings in the morning. I try the late afternoon to take off and be home. And I remember a weekday in this past fall, I believe Lindsay, my wife, and our two oldest kids, I think they were out of the house, and I'm pretty sure maybe Ruthie was with me. I, can't, I think she was taking a nap. Anyways, I was going to make the soup for dinner, and, uh, and I, 
I made everything, and then I had to put it on the stove for 30 minutes. And I thought, you know what? It's 30 minutes. Ruthie's sleeping. I probably should, you know, get ready for the night. Because, um, uh, you know, sometimes I, when I come home, I might change my shirt, get comfortable, but then I got to get, get dressed and get ready to go. So I, I'm like, it's 30 minutes. It's just cooking. It, it, what could go wrong? Uh, so I go upstairs and I take a shower, I get changed, freshen up. Uh, it's probably been 20 minutes or so. I'm like, I probably should go, you know, go down and check on it. And I walk out of the bathroom, which our, our bedroom's above the kitchen, and the windows are open, and I smell a smell. It's not fire. I know that smell. <laughs> and it, it didn't exactly smell like gas. It, it smelled like, pla- like, a, like plastic. And I, I, this is my reasoning. Well, Aqua's been outside working on our road a lot. They're probably out there making these weird smells. Ah, Aqua. Uh, you know, so, so I start to walk down the steps and realize this smell is not coming from outside of the house. It's coming from within. So my first thought is, I'm, I've just burned out of the house. I, so I sprint downstairs. And uh, something like one of the plastic uh, spoons or handles to one of the, the other pots had, had fallen in into the fire and it was burning. It was, it was on fire. It wasn't a big fire, but it was definitely plastic smelling. So I, you know, I grab it and throw it outside and Lindsay comes home. She's like, ew, what does that smell? And, you know, it's come up with excuses. But I share that story because I was reflecting uh, with Lindsay yesterday about how my gut reaction, even though you knew the most obvious thing from that, the first smell was it, I did something wrong. But that wasn't what I internalized. Oh, it couldn't be me. It's got to be something else. I- I'm not the one that's, that's in, in the wrong here. A pastor by the name of Jack Miller, before he died, he, he actually was a local Presbyterian pastor. He used to tell his congregation in many sermons, Hello, I'm Jack Miller, and I'm a recovering Pharisee. Now, I, I don't think that's making little of the serious nature and need f- for organizations like AA, I think it's actually the other way. I, I think what he was trying to do was to provoke the reality that, that hypocrisy is serious and manipulative and self-deceiving. And Jesus, as we see in our passage, was not shy about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which were two of the, the, the groups in leadership of the temple and, and the, the Jewish nation at that time of Jesus. And one of the deadly poisons of a hypocrite is that he or she often sins completely unaware. It's different than blatantly sinning. What we can we can see externally sin, we can see that. But hypocrisy happens inside. Where we think that we live a good moral life. And we start to spend most of our days critiquing the speck of sin in someone else's eye, dust, as Jesus says, and missing the huge plank in our own eye. That's what Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. Always casting blame on others around them for problems, speaking to those they encounter in a condescending way, building up their own empire by tearing down the ones around them, maybe even the ones they love, maybe exclusively the ones that they love. And so many of our churches, sadly, are filled with self-righteous hypocrites. 
And the same was true in the day of Jesus in the temple where, where many came to worship. Our text starts with, hear another parable in verse 33. And as a reader, the most logical thing to think is, well, there probably was a parable before this. Our parable we find this morning is in a trilogy of parables. There are three parables that are connected to one another. The question is, who's Jesus been teaching to? And what was his last parable about? That will help us this morning. In chapter 21, Jesus arrives to Jerusalem. One of the first things he does is he goes into the temple and he critiques those that are selling uh, uh, lambs and and sheep and and those that are for sacrifices, those that are using the temple worship for profit. He goes and critiques them and he flips tables. The chief priests and elders, the next day, who would have probably seen that happen, say to Jesus, who are you to tell us How to lead. Who gives you your authority is what he says two sections before our passage. So Jesus tells a parable. Three, as I said. Now, why did Jesus teach in parables? There's probably a few reasons, but Klein Snodgrass, who wrote a big book of all of Jesus' parables, noted this about the difference between direct communication and indirect communication, meaning me directly telling you something and me describing it, but not directly telling you. He writes, direct communication is important for conveying information, but learning is more than information, especially when people think they already understand. People set their defenses against direct communication and learn to conform its message to the channels of their understanding of reality. Indirect communication finds a way in a back window and confronts what one thinks is reality. Parables are indirect communication. Meaning, if you came to me and said, Will, you are a hypocrite. I I might deny that. I might get defensive. I I might make excuses. I might compare myself to others. And believe, I'm not as bad as you, you're claiming to be. I might, I might keep you at arm's length, or to use Snodgrass's illustration, I might slam the front door in your face. But indirect communication, in, in Jesus' parables, is where he, he talks about another group of people that are fictional. In a fictional re- reality, with, with a fictional plot that relates to the communication and point that he's trying to get across. And oftentimes, stories draw people in. And sometimes, uh, will allow truth to sneak into the back window, as Snodgrass puts it. Where they, they, they actually can't deny that what Jesus is saying is true. It's genius. My brother Maxwell Willis preached on the first parable, but I'll, in case you weren't there, I'll just quickly say it. There were two sons in the parable right before us, verses 28 and 32. One says to his father, I'm not going to go work in the vineyard. But he changes his mind and he goes. The second brother says, Father, I'll work in the vineyard. But he never goes. And then Jesus asks a question to the Pharisees and the elders and the chief priests. Which one did the will, the will of the Father? And then he concludes the parable by telling the chief priests and the elders, 
that the repentful tax collectors and prostitutes will go into heaven before them because they're hypocrites. They're like the second brother who talks the talk but doesn't actually live a life of the will of the Father. Your actions reveal who you really are, which is what we've been talking about in the book of James. That's where our text picks up. So it would be wise to know that Jesus is continuing to speak to the chief priests and the elders, probably with a crowd around them in the temple, and that this parable is connected somehow to the last. So we get to our text. And our our time this morning will be led by three points. And the first one is this. A vineyard of blood. Uh, Verse 33. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Jesus, Jesus begins this parable with another image of a vineyard. But this time, it's very similar to the vineyard in Isaiah 5. So if you would, I meant to already tell you this, but I forgot. Could you turn back to the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament? Isaiah 5. And as you turn there, I'll go ahead and tell you this. Isaiah 5, verse 1 is where we'll start. A prophet is someone, especially in the Old Testament, and we see in the New Testament, uh, in Jesus, is someone who, on behalf of God, goes to either God's people, God's leaders, or the other nations around, and warns them. This is where you are sinning and rebelling against God. As a warning, repent. Change your ways, because the wrath of God is coming. But if you repent, you will be greeted with grace and mercy. Isaiah begins his book with an image of a vineyard. Verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So we're reading Isaiah. The the chief priests and the elders and the Pharisees, they would know this passage. And they would be reminded and know who who Isaiah meant it for. Look at verse uh, verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah. On our pleasant planting, and he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Isaiah tells us, and his, when he's telling his image of a vineyard, that the people of God are the vineyard. And it is God's vineyard. And he actually critiques the entire vineyard itself. You were meant to produce fruit, but you're producing wild fruit. You're producing blood. And there's an outcry for righteousness. Now turn back to, to our passage in Matthew 21. Jesus, as the true prophet, is also critiquing and warning to repent. But notice where his 
uh, vineyard takes a different turn. Verse 34. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. So Jesus, in his image, actually turns the focus to the tenants, the ones who are working the field, not, not the vineyard itself. In Jesus' parable, the owner who built the vineyard traveled to a different country and left his vineyard in the charge of local tenants or, or local farmers. And there, were, there would have been a, a contract or a lease agreement that they would harvest the fruit. They would be paid some of the harvest for their labors. But when the time of harvest came, the owner was due his fruit. This is, was a common practice, and there are records of this taking place. So Jesus is using a fictional story in, the, in, a, in a time where people would have known what was happening. It made sense to them. But then it deviates because the servants are quite wicked. For whatever reason, perhaps greed, selfishness, Maybe the tenants fell in love with being the ones in power with the owner gone. We're not really sure why they don't obey the owner. I don't think that's the point. The point is they rejected and disobeyed the servants, the representatives of the owner, and therefore rejected and disobeyed the master of the vineyard. Now, there's some irony at play in the wording of the text. The master sent his servants to get his fruit. That word to get is also then used to talk about how the tenants took the servants and murdered them in cold blood. There's a reversal. You see, the the owner is the rightful one to, to, to receive his fruit. But instead of giving, the tenants take instead. And it results in murder and chaos. The vineyard that was meant for fruit and life becomes a graveyard of sin and death. The parable is very broken and, 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 and wicked, and, and the listeners would have known that, and we see they do. But the tension doesn't stop there. It only continues to rise. Verse 36, again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. So the exact same situation happened. The master of the house, for whatever reason, delays the judgment that that those tenants deserve. Instead, he sends more, a greater number of servants to go. And the result is not only the same, it's, it's even worse. With more people, there was more bloodshed. The narrative of this fictional story, the tension continues to rise higher and higher. Now, I think we, some people might say, well, isn't it so amazing that the owner delayed his judgment and didn't bring... I think that's probably stretching the analogy too far. The point is actually, we're going to see, that the wicked tenants deserve a wicked end. But the tension continues to rise. Verse 37... Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now, the servants did not have the authority to protest to what was happening. But the son did. 
The father thought, well, they'll respect my son. I'll send him. But the tenants start to become delusional. I read one commentator who said, their reason of thinking, well, we'll kill the son and then we'll get the vineyard. That's not how the legal agreement would have worked. They get to the point where they're, they're so caught up in their bloodshed and their sin that they become delusional, thinking, we can take this. This is ours. Instead of a healthy vineyard, the vineyard has become one of corruption and murder and hate and selfishness and greed and violence. A vineyard of blooming crops and order becomes a vineyard of decay and chaos. That's the picture. A vineyard of life and fruit becomes a vineyard filled with death. And it's gory. It is a vineyard of blood. And as a listener, you can't help but respond and think, what wicked tenants. They must be punished. Will the victims get vindication? God, where is your justice? Which leads me to my second point. The wicked's demise. Jesus reaches the end of the parable, and as all good teachers do, he actually lets his listeners discover the truth. He asks a question. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? I once had a mentor. mentor his name was Mike Kramer. Um, he actually lived in Chester County for a season, but I met him when I lived, when I lived in Virginia, where I'm from, and he uh, mentored me in my job and also in life, and uh, he, he was a trainer in my world, and many people come to him with big, with big questions about their ministry job and big questions about life, and, and Mike never gives you the answer. You come, I, I, Mike, I'd, I'd be in his base, Mike, I got him. I got a big one. I got a big stumper. I cannot figure this out. And I'd ask him a question. And then he would respond with a question. And it would really throw me off. No, you've been doing this. Tell me, tell me the answer. And so he'd ask me a question, and, which would make me respond. And then he would ask me another question and another question and another question. And before I knew it, we've circled around to the answer. And I actually discovered it myself. And you have this aha moment. And he did it so often that we, we coined the term, I just got Kramer. Like, that's where he would ask you questions and, you know, you'd be like, wow, this, this is amazing. Jesus sometimes is very blunt and directly tells people what they need to hear. And other times, like, like a good teacher, a good counselor, he asks questions. That's what he does here. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, who is they? Well, we see in verse 45, and before our text, it's the chief priest, it's the Pharisees. They're the ones who answer. That's the irony of all of this. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. They want justice in this story. The Greek text more, more closely reads... The wicked ones he will destroy wickedly. So, so the ESV, which is very helpful, uses a different word for miserable and, uh, and, and for uh, wretches. But it's more like the wicked ones will die wickedly or the evil ones will die evil. It, 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 it's, they get what they deserve. And it's the, the listeners who want that. They want justice. 
And I was thinking, why are they so emphatic for justice in this situation? And I read and read, and I could not find an answer, but I did reflect, and here's a couple that might be, might be true. One is maybe, maybe they think Jesus is now testing them, and they want to show, we know the Bible. We know that God is a God of justice. We know the answer. Maybe it's that. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, the, the people of God are referred to as God's son. Maybe they're hearing the story, and they, 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 they identify with the son. And they think about people that, like, like Rome, who've oppressed us. And yes, give Rome what they deserve. I, I don't really know why. I don't think it's that important. But they, they know what's right, ironically. And yet they are so far off. And I think we, we can relate with that, actually. How many of us desire justice when it's somebody else? You're watching a court case, and you think, that person is guilty, and I know it, and, and we pray for justice. Another way to think about that is, we think soberly about justice when we're not the ones on trial. We are so slow, like the Pharisees and chief priests, to admit that we are often the ones guilty of sin. So the Pharisees respond, we want justice. Give the wicked a wicked death. Which our next parable will kind of linger on that idea of being destroyed or being death. What kind of death we will receive in the end. The eternal judgment that is coming for all those who are outside of Christ. They got it right. And so Jesus affirms their right answer by switching the analogy and looking at another passage of Scripture. What we read this morning, verse 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. I once was listening to a pastor and author named, named Sam Alberry, and he was preaching on a similar Phrase have you, have you never read in, in Matthew 19? Jesus is teaching the Pharisees. They come to him, a question about marriage, and he says, have you never read? And then he, he quotes uh, the Genesis 1 and 2 creation story, which again is very ironic, being the scribes and the Pharisees who knew the law inside and out, had big passages memorized, and Sam makes this joke where he says, it's almost as if in that situation Jesus says, Hey, in all your studies of the Bible, did you ever make it to page one? That, 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 that's the humor. A similar thing is actually happening. When, when Jesus quotes Psalm 118, he's getting at a similar feeling. Psalms 113 to 118 are often called the Egyptian halals, which means praise. So there's psalms that are lumped together, that were collected together to praise God for the exodus of God's people from Egypt. And they would often use it individually and corporately in in big holidays like Passover. Well, this parable is happening in the week of Passover. The irony, Jesus, hey, hey, I know that everyone's singing these songs, and you've probably looked at this three times this week, but have you never read? Meaning, you see, but you're blind. He actually says later in 23, as the tension rises, because after our our parables, there's all these debates with the Pharisees, and then Jesus kind of pronounces a judgment. 
And he calls the Pharisees and scribes blind guides. You're the blind leading the blind. You have no idea what the scriptures actually mean. It would almost be like if, if on, the, on Christmas Eve, one of you came up to, to, to Pastor Raymond and you said, hey, I don't, have you ever heard the song Silent Night? And he's like, we sing that every Christmas Eve. But I can't, what do you mean? Like, you see. This is what Jesus is saying, but you don't understand. And I wonder how many of us have grown up in church our entire lives, and we see everything, but we don't understand and the hypocrisy that's inside of us. It needs to be confronted. Who is Jesus talking to in this parable? It's very clear. The Pharisees know at verse 45... It says, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard the parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Probably because of the next thing Jesus says in verse 43. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, Pharisees, chief priests, and given to a people producing its fruit. Jesus is very clear. He uses Psalm 118 as, 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 as a condemnation. He makes it very clear by his parable in the vineyard. You, you are the ones that are killing the son. Therefore, I tell you, in a sense, Pharisees and chief priests and Sadducees, you believe you are righteously leading God's people, but you are wicked. And the kingdom will be taken from you. Now, that's, that sounds harsh. But you've got to remember, this is the same Jesus to the prostitutes, and ta- the prostitutes and tax collectors he just talked about in the parable before are spending time with them and love them. He's called gentle and lowly in Matthew 11. But he is not afraid to call out hypocrisy, especially in leadership, as a, as a good prophet. And, not, and don't forget... Not all the prophecies, or not all the, the, the Pharisees reject Jesus, Nicodemus. He actually has eyes to see. And he turns to Christ. And then Jesus concludes, what will be the judgment? In verse 44, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. He uses uh, two references from the Old Testament to tell them what their judgment will be. In Isaiah 8, you don't need to turn there, but in Isaiah 8, uh, G, G, uh, Isaiah talks about this stone that is the Lord that will make many Israelites stumble over and break as they are exiled into Assyria. In Daniel 2, Daniel interprets a dream of King Nebuchadnezzar about an uncut stone that crushes a statue made of different metals. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know what that means. And Daniel says, I'll tell you what it means. The uncut stone is the kingdom of God that will crush all other kingdoms and will will be forever. Jesus tells them that their judgment is coming. Pharisees and Sadducees. And whether you trip over it or it crushes you, you will be destroyed if you do not repent of your hypocrisy. 
And I think it's easy for us. I think we read stories, and whenever we see the Pharisees, we're like, yeah, get them. They're the bad guys. But don't you see how ironic that is? We then become the Pharisees. Who's to say that if we weren't there, we wouldn't be yelling the same thing to Jesus? Self-identifying Christians who don't think that their sin is that bad. Don't you see how prone to hypocrisy that we are? We love pointing to other sin, but we rarely own our own. I don't even wonder this morning if we're reading this and we're thinking, man, I wish that my spouse was listening to this. I wish that my coworker was listening to this. I wish that my roommate was listening to this message because they, when they're out in public, they are talking the talk. But I know how they live behind closed doors. And I wonder if in that we're really showing our own hearts to be a Pharisee. And I will warn you, as Jesus warned the Pharisees, do not continue in hypocrisy, putting up a front on the outside, but on the inside, wasting away, filled with greed and selfishness and pride and arrogance. Because we can fool each other. You might even be able to fool yourself. But you can't fool Jesus. And yet, he loves us in spite of our sin. So point three, I'm going to turn us to this morning, is the rejected one. We we see this idea of rejection in a few different places in our passage. Lastly, with the the idea that Jesus is a prophet, verse uh, 45 and 46, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. The chief priests and Pharisees wanted to eliminate Jesus. The tension that had been growing, in some ways, was parallel to the tension that was growing between the Pharisees and Jesus. They wanted to arrest him and to get rid of him. But they feared the crowd. That's what, that, there you go. There's a picture of hypocrisy and self-righteousness. We feel, fear what other people think and not God. So they, they waited for an opportune moment to strike. But the crowd revered Jesus as a prophet. Actually, in the parable right before, Jesus says, uh, right before the, our parable, when they questioned, the Pharisees questioned Jesus about the authority of, of Jesus, he talks about uh, how they didn't see, uh, they didn't want to answer against John the Baptist because they, they feared that the crowd thought he was a prophet. So Jesus is compared to John the Baptist, which in Matthew, in all the Gospels, the hard thing about that is it doesn't end well for the prophet. Herod, King Herod, also feared the crowd and had John beheaded. It's almost as if Matthew wants you to know. In the midst of confronting the wickedness of sin and and the demand for justice is a God who is willing to walk right into the lion's den to take our place. He will be a rejected prophet. He is the rejected cornerstone. I kind of skipped over that so I could come back to it. You know, as he's quoting Psalm 118, it says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone 
This image of a stone. When the builders are building a big thing, they go, ah, this stone, eh, that's not going to work. And they, they cast it aside. That stone ironically becomes the, the cornerstone, or, or the Greek literally reads, the head of the corner. So, so maybe less a picture of what everything's built on and more the stone that is on the top that ensures that the two walls connect rightly. That the, the, the stone that the builders rejected actually ironically is a reversal and becomes the top, the one worthy of all praise and honor. Jesus is clearly referring to himself. I am the cornerstone that was, the stone that was rejected and, and I will become a cornerstone. But first, before he is resurrected and ascends back to his father, he will die. But do not lose heart, because in his death brings resurrection. And all those who trust in Christ and follow him, that we suffer here, will be resurrected to new life. And there's a play on words. The, the stone in Hebrew though they probably were speaking Aramaic, the Pharisees and the Sadducees would know, would know these verses in Hebrew. The word for stone, eben, is so similar to the word for son, ben. There's a, there's a play on words between the son in the vineyard who was rejected and beaten and brought out of the city and murdered. That's what's going to happen to the rejected stone. So in the midst of judgment is beautiful grace. Because for those who trust in Christ, Jesus will take the wrath that we deserve, the wrath of our hypocrisy, and will take the judgment on himself on a cross. Jesus is our loving Lord and compassionate Savior. And he's kind of... He's not completely like the son in the story. The son in the story kind of shows up and is just murdered. It's not, it was not the plan of the father. But our father. That was the plan from the beginning. To send his son willingly. The son willingly died in your place. Where the one son was, was murdered in a garden. Jesus, a few days later, and another garden will say, Father, your will be done. He will go on a cross and to the same hypocrites say, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You are very loved. Question to the Pharisees and to you is, will you repent? Will you Turn to Christ. Will you follow the rejected cornerstone? Because the wrath is coming for those who do not have eyes to see and ears to hear. I just have a few points of application for us and then, and then we'll be done this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and you have never trusted in Christ. You wouldn't say that you're a Christian. You, you're not really sure how you ended up here? Well, we at our church, we know how. Because perhaps God wanted you to hear this morning that you have a Savior who, if you are willing to confess your sin, will meet you with grace and mercy and will take the judgment that you deserve on himself. 
Perhaps you're a Christian here, and I would ask you this. Where in your life are you a Pharisee? Maybe you talk the talk, but behind closed doors, you don't actually walk with Christ in that specific area of your life. Perhaps you fear the crowd more than you fear your father. Perhaps you you feel righteous in every conflict and conversation, and you're always looking to get the the, the upper edge on, on, on those around you, ironically destroying the relationships. I'd say there are, there are probably several, but there are at least two antidotes to the cancer of hypocrisy. One is humility. Constantly putting yourself beside Christ and seeing, I do not measure up. But not falling to despair, viewing you the way that God does. I am a child of God. See, see humility is not thinking little of yourself. It's, it's, in some ways, it's thinking of yourself less or thinking of yourself appropriately. I'm a son of the king, but I am not the king. And therefore, in every relationship, bringing that humility. So that's one. And another would be, another antidote to the cancer of hypocrisy would be vulnerability. I, I don't think we need to be public with every single sin that we struggle with, but I do think that we cannot be secret about any of our sins. There needs to be at least a few brothers and sisters, preferably in the, in the church that you're a part of, that know everything about your life. Because when we hide in darkness, we, we start to develop Pharisee tendencies of hiding and putting out a front on the outside but not being honest on the inside. We don't have to be afraid of admitting our sin because we have a rejected prophet, a rejected son, a rejected savior who died in your place. And I I would just say, on top of that, I think sometimes it can be really hard as a Christian if we actually start to see a lot of growth in an area of our life and then we backslide. Like we were willing to be vulnerable the first time, but now I don't want people to know that I'm, we have to be people that are willing right now to admit I am a sinner and I need help. And imagine if our church had a spirit of vulnerability and humility instead of self-righteousness and hypocrisy. There's a reason why people look at the church and think, oh, they're a bunch of hypocrites. It's because a lot of us are. But can we admit it? And instead of saying, you need Jesus. Have you heard the phrase, y'all need Jesus? It's, it's, it's actually a very hypocritical, condescending phrase. We need Jesus. Come with us. Let us be quick to admit our sin. And I'll start, and this is how we'll end. Hello, my name is Will Hall, and I'm a recovering Pharisee. What say you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our great king, our great prophet, our great God, rejected as the cornerstone. We praise you, Lord, that three days after you died in our place and took on our judgment and offered us forgiveness for those who believe in you, you rose to life in power that we might have power over our sin, over our hypocrisy. We confess, Lord, that we often 
throw off the sin outwardly and take on the sin of hypocrisy. And I pray, Lord, that we would be people who would admit inside and out that we need you. And may you be glorified in our church. Thank you for your word. Amen.